part one of speech by edmund burke this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org speech given to the house of commons on the twenty second of march seventeen seventy five by edmund burke a conciliation with america by edmund burke seventeen seventy five i hope sir that notwithstanding the austerity of the chair your good nature will incline you to some degree of indulgence towards human frailty you will not think it unnatural that those who have an object depending which strongly engages their hopes and fears should be somewhat inclined to superstition as i came into the house full of anxiety by the event of my motion i found to my infinite surprise that the grand penal bill by which we had passed sentence on the trade and sustenance of america is to be returned to us from the other house i do confess i could not help looking on this event as a fortunate omen i look upon it as a sort of providential favor by which we are put once more in possession of our deliberative capacity upon a business so very questionable in its nature so very uncertain in its issue by the return of this bill which seemed to have taken its flight forever we are at this very instant nearly as free to choose a plan for our american government as we were on the first day of the session if sir we incline to the side of conciliation we are not at all embarrassed unless we please to make ourselves so by any incongruous mixture of coercion and restraint we are therefore called upon as if it were by a superior warning voice again to attend to america to attend to the whole of it together and to review the subject with an unusual degree of care and calmness surely it is an awful subject or there is none so on this side of the grave I first had the honor of a seat in this house, the affairs of the continent pressed themselves upon us as the most important and most delicate object of parliamentary attention. My little share in this great deliberation oppressed me. I found myself a partaker in a very high trust, and, having no sort of reason to rely on the strength of my natural abilities for the proper execution of that trust, I was obliged to take more than common pains to instruct myself in everything which relates to our colonies. I was not less under the necessity of forming some fixed ideas concerning the general policy of the British Empire. Something of this sort seemed to be indispensable, in order, amid so vast a fluctuation of passions and opinions, to concentrate my thoughts, to ballast my conduct, to preserve me from being blown about by every wind of fashionable doctrine. I really did not think it safe or manly to have fresh principles to seek upon every fresh mail which should arrive from America. At that period, I had the fortune to find myself in perfect concurrence with a large majority in this house, bowing under that high authority and penetrated with the sharpness and strength of that early impression, I've continued ever since without the least deviation in my original sentiments. Whether this be owing to an obstinate perseverance in error or to a religious adherence to what appears to me truth and reason, it is in your equity to judge. Sir, Parliament having an enlarged view of objects made during this interval more frequent changes in their sentiments and their conduct than can be justified in a particular person upon the contracted scale of private information. But though I do not hazard anything approaching to a censure on the motives of former parliaments to all those alterations, one fact is undoubted, that under them the state of America has been kept in continual agitation everything administered as remedy to the public complaint if it did not produce was at least followed by 
and heightening of the distemper until, by a variety of experiments, that important country has been brought into our present situation. A situation which I will not miscall, which I dare not name, which I scarcely know how to comprehend in the terms of any description. In this posture, sir, things stood at the beginning of the session. About that time, a worthy member of great parliamentary experience, who, in the year 1766, filled the chair of the American Committee with much ability, took me aside, and, lamenting the present aspect of our politics, told me things were come to such a pass that our former methods of proceeding in the House would be no longer tolerated, that the public tribunal, never too indulgent to a long and unsuccessful opposition, would now scrutinize our conduct with unusual severity, that the very vicissitudes and shiftings of ministerial measures, instead of convicting their authors of inconstancy and want of system, would be taken as an occasion of charging us with a predetermined discontent, which nothing could satisfy, whilst we accused every measure of vigor as cruel and every proposal of lenity as weak and irresolute. The public, he said, would not have patience to see us play the game out with our adversaries. We must produce our hand. It would be expected that those who, for many years, have been active in such affairs should show that they have formed some clear and decided idea of the principles of colony government, and were capable of drawing out something like a platform of the ground which might be laid for future and permanent tranquility. I felt the truth of what my honorable friend represented, but I felt my situation too. His application might have been made with far greater propriety to many other gentlemen. No man was indeed ever better disposed or worse qualified for such an undertaking than myself. Though I gazed so far into his opinion that I immediately threw my thoughts into a sort of parliamentary form, I was by no means equally ready to produce them. It generally argues some degree of natural impotence of mind or some want of knowledge of the world to hazard plans of government except from a seat of authority. Propositions are made not only ineffectually, but somewhat disreputably, when the minds of men are not properly disposed for their reception. And for my part, I am not ambitious of ridicule, not absolutely a candidate for disgrace. Besides, sir, to speak the plain truth, I have in general no very exalted opinion of the virtue of paper government, nor of any politics in which the plan is to be wholly separated from the execution. But when I saw that anger and violence prevailed every day more and more, that things were hastening towards an incurable alienation of our colonies, I confess my caution gave way. I felt this as one of those few moments in which decorum yields to a higher duty. Public calamity is a mighty leveler, and there are occasions when any, even the slightest chance of doing good, must be laid hold on, even by the most inconsiderable person. To restore order and repose to an empire so great and so distracted as ours is merely an attempt, an undertaking that would ennoble the flights of the highest genius and obtain pardon for the efforts of the meanest understanding. Struggling a good while with these thoughts, by degrees I felt myself more firm. I derived at length some confidence for another circumstances usually produces timidity. I grew less anxious, even from the idea of my own insignificance. For, judging of what you are by what you ought to be, I persuaded myself that you would not reject a reasonable proposition because that had nothing but its reason to recommend it. On the other hand, being totally destitute of all shadow of influence, natural or adventitious, I was very sure that if my proposition were futile or dangerous, if it were weakly conceived or improperly timed, that there was nothing exterior to it of power to awe, dazzle, or delude you. You'll see it just as it is, and you'll treat it just as it deserves. 
proposition is peace not peace through the medium of war not peace to be hunted through the labyrinth of intricate and endless negotiations not peace to arise out of universal discord fomented from principle in all parts of the empire not peace to depend on the juridical determination of perplexing questions or the precise marking the shadowy boundaries of a complex government it is simple peace sought in its natural course and in its ordinary haunts is a peace sought in the spirit of peace and laid in principles purely pacific i propose by removing the ground of the difference and by restoring the former unsuspecting confidence of the colonies in the mother country to give permanent satisfaction to your people and far from a scheme of ruling by discord to reconcile them to each other in the same act and by the bond of the very same interest which reconciles them to british government idea is nothing more refined policy ever has been the parent of confusion and ever will be so as long as the world endures plain good intention which is easily discovered at the first view as fraud is surely detected at last is let me say of no mean force in the government of mankind genuine simplicity of heart is a healing and cementing principle my plan therefore being formed upon the most simple grounds imaginable might disappoint some people when they hear it there is nothing to recommend it to the pruriency of curious ears there is nothing at all new and captivating in it it has nothing of the splendor of the project which has been lately laid upon your table by the noble lord in the blue ribbon it does not propose to fill your lobby with squabbling colony agents who will acquire the interposition of your mace at every instant to keep the peace amongst them it does not institute a magnificent auction of finance where captivated provinces come to general ransom by bidding against each other until you knock down the hammer and determine a proportion of payments beyond all the powers of algebra to equalize and settle the plan which i presume to suggest derives however one great advantage from the proposition and registry of that noble lord's project the idea of consolation is admissible first the house and accepting the resolution moved by the noble lord has admitted notwithstanding the menacing front of our address notwithstanding our heavy bills of pains and penalties that we do not think ourselves precluded from all ideas of free grace and bounty the house has gone farther and has declared consolation admissible previous to any submission on the part of america it has shot a good deal beyond that mark and has admitted that the complaints of our former mode of exerting the right of taxation were not wholly unfounded that right thus exerted is allowed to have something reprehensible in it something unwise or something grievous since in the midst of our heat and resentment we of ourselves have proposed a capital alteration in order to get rid of what seems so very exceptionable have instituted a mode that is altogether new one that is indeed wholly alien from all the ancient methods and forms of parliament the principle of this proceeding is large enough for my purpose the means proposed by the noble lord for carrying his ideas into execution i think indeed are very indifferently suited to the end and this i shall endeavor to show you before i sit down but for the present i take my ground on the admitted principle i mean to give peace peace implies reconciliation and where there has been a material dispute a reconciliation does in a matter always imply concession on the one part or on the other in this state of things i make no difficulty in affirming that the proposal ought to originate from us great and acknowledged force is not impaired 
either in effect or in opinion, by an unwillingness to exert itself. The superior power may offer peace with honor and with safety. Such an offer from such a power will be attributed to magnanimity. But the concessions of the weak are the concessions of fear. When such a one is disarmed, he is wholly at the mercy of his superior, and he loses forever that time and those chances, which, if they happen to all men, are the strength and resources of all inferior power. The capital leading questions on which you must this day decide are these two. First, whether you ought to concede, and secondly, what your concession ought to be. On the first of these questions we have gained, as I have just taken the liberty of observing to you some ground, but I am sensible that a good deal more is still to be done. Indeed, sir, to enable us to determine both on the one and the other of these great questions with a firm and precise judgment, I think it may be necessary to consider distinctly the true nature and the peculiar circumstances of the object which we have before us, because after all our struggle, whether we will or not, we must govern America according to that nature and to those circumstances, and not according to our own imaginations, nor according to abstract ideas of right, by no means according to mere general theories of government, the resort to which appears to me, in our present situation, no better than errant trifling. I shall therefore endeavor, with your leave, to lay before you some of the most material of these circumstances as full and as clear a manner as I am able to state them. The first thing we have to consider with regard to the nature of the object is the number of people in the colonies. I have taken for some years a good deal of pains on that point. I can by no calculation justify myself in placing the number below two millions of inhabitants of our own European blood and color besides at least 500,000 others who form no inconsiderable part of the strength and opulence of the whole. This, sir, is, I believe, about the true number. There is no occasion to exaggerate where plain truth is of so much weight and importance. But whether I put the present numbers too high or too low is a matter of little moment. Such is the strength with which population shoots in that part of the world, let's state the numbers as high as we will, whilst the dispute continues, the exaggeration ends. Whilst we are discussing any given magnitude, they are grown to it. Whilst we spend our time in deliberating on the mode of governing two millions, we shall find we have millions more to manage. Your children do not grow faster from infancy to manhood than they spread from families to communities and from villages to nations. I put this consideration of the present and the growing numbers in front of our deliberation because, sir, this consideration will make it evident to a blunter discernment than yours that no partial, narrow, contracted, pinched, occasional system will be at all suitable to such an object. It will show you that it is not to be considered as one of those minima which are out of the eye and consideration of the law, not a paltry excrescence of the state, not a mean dependent who may be neglected with little damage and provoked with little danger. It will prove that some degree of care and caution is required in the handling of such an object. It will show that you ought not, in reason, to trifle with so large a mass of the interests and feelings of the human race. You can at no time do so without guilt, and be assured you will not be able to do it long with impunity. The population of this country, the great and growing population, though a very important consideration, will lose much of its weight if not combined with other circumstances. The commerce of your colonies is out of all proportion beyond the numbers of the people. This ground of their commerce, indeed, has been trod some days ago, and with great ability, by a distinguished person at your bar. 
This gentleman, after 35 years, it is so long since he first appeared at the same place to plead for the commerce of Great Britain, has come again before you to plead the same cause without any other effect of time than that to the fire of imagination and extent of erudition, which even then marked him as one of the first literary characters of his age. He has added a consummate knowledge and the commercial interest of his country formed by a long course of enlightened and discriminating experience. Sir, I should be inexcusable in coming after such a person with any detail. There were a great part of the members who now fill the house had not the misfortune to be absent when he appeared at your bar. Besides, sir, I propose to take the matter at periods of time somewhat different from his. There is, if I mistake not, a point of view from whence, if you will look at this subject, it is impossible that it should not make an impression upon you. I have my hand two accounts. One, a comparative state of the export trade of England to its colonies, as it stood in the year 1704, and as it stood in the year 1772. The other, a state of the export trade of this country to its colonies alone, as it stood in 1772, compared with the whole trade of England to all parts of the world, the colonies included, in the year 1704. They are from good vouchers. The latter period, from the accounts on your table, the earlier from an original manuscript of Davenant, who first established an inspector general's office, which has been ever since his time so abundant a source of parliamentary information. The export trade to the colonies consists of three great branches. The African, which terminating almost wholly in the colonies, must be put to the account of their commerce. The West Indian and the North American. All these are so interwoven that the attempt to separate them would tear to pieces the contexture of the whole, and, if not entirely destroyed, would very much depreciate the value of all the parts. I therefore consider these three denominations to be what in effect they are, one trade. The trade to the colonies, taken on the export side at the beginning of the century, that is, in the year 1704, stood thus. Exports to North America and the West Indies, 483,265 pounds to Africa, 86,665 pounds. In the year 1772, which I take as the middle year between the highest and lowest of those lately laid on your table, the count was as follows. To North America and the West Indies, 4,791,734 pounds. To Africa, 866,398 pounds. To which, if you add export trade from Scotland, which in 1704 had no existence, 364,000 pounds. From 500 and odd thousand, it has grown to six millions. It has increased no less than 12-fold. This is the state of the colony trade as compared with itself at these two periods within this century, and this is a matter for meditation. But this is not all. Examine my second account. See how the export trade to the colonies alone in 1772 stood in the other point of view, that is, as compared to the whole trade of England in 1704. The whole export trade of England, including that to the colonies in 1704, £6,509,000. Export to the colonies alone in 1772, £6,024,000. The trade with America alone is now within less than £500,000 of being equal to what this great commercial nation, England, carried on at the beginning of this century with the whole world. If I had taken the largest year of those on your table, it would rather have exceeded. But, it will be said, is not this American trade an unnatural protuberance that has drawn the juices from the rest of the body? The reverse. 
It is the very food that has nourished every other part into its present magnitude. Our general trade has been greatly augmented, augmented more or less in almost every part to which it has ever extended, but with this material difference, that of the six millions which in the beginning of the century constitute the whole mass of our export commerce, the colony trade was but one twelfth part. It is now, as a part of sixteen millions, considerably more than a third of the whole. This is the relative proportion of the importance of the colonies at these two periods, and all reasoning concerning our mode of treating them must have this proportion as its basis, or it is a reasoning weak, rotten, and sophistical. Mr. Speaker, I cannot prevail myself to hurry over this great consideration. It is good for us to be here. We stand where we have an immense view of what is and what is past. Clouds indeed and darkness rest upon the future. Let us, however, before we descend from this noble eminence, reflect that this growth of our national prosperity has happened within the short period of the life of man. It's happened within sixty-eight years. There are those alive whose memory might touch the two extremities. For instance, my Lord Bathurst might remember all the stages of the progress. He was, in 1704, of an age at least to be made to comprehend such things. He was then old enough, acta parentum, jam legere, et co, si potu, cognoscer virtus. Suppose, sir, that the angel of this auspicious youth, foreseeing the many virtues which made him one of the most amiable, as he is one of the most fortunate men of his age, had opened to him in vision that when in the fourth generation the third prince of the house of brunswick had set twelve years on the throne of that nation which by the happy issue of moderate and healing counsels was to be made great britain he should see his son lord chancellor of england turn back the current of hereditary dignity to its fountain and raise him to a higher rank of peerage whilst he enriched the family with a new one if amidst these bright and happy scenes of domestic honor and prosperity the danger should have drawn up the curtain and unfolded the rising glories of his country and whilst he was gazing with admiration on the then commercial grandeur of england the genius should point out to him a little speck scarcely visible in the mass of the national interest a small seminal principle rather than a foreign body and should tell him young man there is america which at this day serves for little more than to amuse you with stories of savage men and uncouth manners yet shall before you taste of death show itself equal to the whole of that commerce which now attracts the envy of the world whatever england has been growing to by progressive increase of improvement brought in by varieties of people by succession of civilizing conquests and civilizing settlements in a series of seventeen hundred years you shall see as much added to her by america in the course of a single life if this state of his country had been foretold to him, would it not require all the sanguine credulity of youth and all the fervent glow of enthusiasm to make him believe it? Fortunate man, he has lived to see it. Fortunate indeed, if he lives to see nothing that shall vary the prospect and cloud the setting of his day. Excuse me, sir, if turning from such thoughts I resume this comparative view once more. You have seen it on a large scale. Look at it on a small one. I'll point out to your attention a particular instance of it in the single province of Pennsylvania. In the year 1704, the province called for 11,459 pounds in value of your commodities, native and foreign. This was the whole. What did it demand in 1772? Why, nearly 50 times as much. For in that year, the export to Pennsylvania was 507,909 pounds, nearly equal to the export to all the colonies together in the first period. I truly serve to enter into these minute and particular details, because generalities, which in all other cases are apt to heighten and raise the subject, have here a tendency to sink it. When we speak of the commerce with our colonies, 
Fiction lags after truth, invention is unfruitful, and imagination cold and barren. So far, sir, as to the importance of the object, in view of its commerce, as concerned in the exports from England, if I were to detail the imports, I could show how many enjoyments they procure, which deceive the burthen of life, how many materials which invigorate the springs of national industry and extend and animate every part of our foreign and domestic commerce. This would be a curious subject indeed, but I must prescribe balance to myself in a matter so vast and various. I pass, therefore, to the colonies in another point of view, their agriculture. This they have prosecuted with such a spirit that, besides feeding plentifully their own growing multitude, their annual export of grain, comprehending rice, has some years ago exceeded a million in value. Of their last harvest, I am persuaded they will export much more. At the beginning of the century, some of these colonies imported corn from the mother country. For some time past, the old world has been fed from the new. The scarcity which you have felt would have been a desolating famine if this child of your old age, with a true filial piety, with a Roman charity, had not put the full breast of its youthful exuberance to the mouth of its exhausted parent. As to the wealth which the colonies have drawn from the sea by their fisheries, you had all that matter fully opened at your bar. You surely thought those acquisitions of value, for they seemed even to excite your envy. And yet, the spirit by which that enterprising employment has been exercised ought rather, in my opinion, to have raised your esteem and admiration. And pray, sir, what in the world is equal to it? Pass by the other parts, and look at the manner in which the people of New England have of late carried on the whale fishery. Whilst we follow them among the tumbling mountains of ice, and behold them penetrating into the deepest frozen recesses of Hudson's Bay and Davis's Straits, whilst we are looking for them beneath the Arctic Circle, we hear that they have pierced into the opposite region of polar cold, that they are at the antipodes, and engaged under the frozen serpent of the south, Falkland Island, which seemed too remote and romantic an object for the grasp of national ambition, is but a stage and resting place in the progress of their victorious industry. Nor is the inquinoctial heat more discouraging to them than the accumulated winter of both the poles. We know that while some of them draw the line and strike the harpoon on the coast of Africa, others run the longitude and pursue their gigantic game along the coast of Brazil. No sea but what is vexed by their fisheries, no climate that is not witness to their toils. Neither the perseverance of Holland, nor the activity of France, nor the dexterous and firm sagacity of England enterprise ever carry this most perilous mode of hardy industry to the extent to which it has been pushed by this recent people, a people who are still, as it were, but in the gristle, and not yet hardened into the bone of manhood. When I contemplate these things, when I know that the colonies in general owe little or nothing to any care of ours, and that they are not squeezed into this happy form by the constraints of watchful and suspicious government, but that, through a wise and salutary neglect, a generous nature has been suffered to take her own way to perfection. When I reflect upon these effects, when I see how profitable they have been to us, I feel all the pride of power sink, and all the presumption and the wisdom of human contrivances melt and die away within me. My rigor relents, I pardon something to the spirit of liberty. I am sensible, sir, that all which I have asserted in my detail is admitted in the gross, but that quite a different conclusion is drawn from it. America, gentlemen say, is a noble object. It is an object well worth fighting for. Certainly it is, if fighting the people be the best way of gaining them. Gentlemen in this respect will be led to their choice of means by their complexions and their habits. Those who understand the military art will of course have some predilection for it, 
those who wield the thunder of the state may have more confidence in the efficacy of arms. But I confess, possibly for want of this knowledge, my opinion is much more in favor of prudent management than of force. Considering force not as odious, but as a feeble instrument for preserving a people so numerous, so active, so growing, so spirited as this, and a profitable and subordinate connection with us. First, sir, permit me to observe that the use of force alone is but temporary. It may subdue for a moment, but it does not remove the necessity of subduing it again. And a nation is not governed, which is perpetually to be conquered. My next objection is its uncertainty. Terror is not always the effect of force, and an armament is not a victory. If you do not succeed, you are without resource, for, consolation failing, force remains, but force failing, no further hope of reconciliation is left. Power and authority are sometimes bought by kindness, but they can never be begged as alms by an impoverished and defeated violence. A further objection to force is that you impair the object by your very endeavors to preserve it. The thing you fought for is not the thing which you recover, but depreciated, sunk, wasted, and consumed in the contest. Nothing less will content me than whole America. I do not choose to consume its strength along with our own, because in all parts it is the British strength that I consume. I do not choose to be caught by a foreign enemy at the end of this exhausting conflict, and still less in the midst of it. I may escape, but I can make no insurance against such an event. Let me add that I do not choose wholly to break the American spirit, because it is the spirit that has made the country. Lastly, we have no sort of experience in favor of force as an instrument in the rule of our colonies. Their growth and their utility has been owing to methods altogether different. Our ancient indulgence has been said to be pursued to a fault. It may be so, but we know if feeling is evident that our fault was far more tolerable than our attempt to mend it, and our sin far more salutary than our penitence. These, sir, are my reasons for not entertaining that high opinion of untried force by which many gentlemen, for whose sentiments and other particulars I have great respect, seem to be so greatly captivated. But there is still behind a third consideration concerning this object which serves to determine my opinion on the sort of policy which ought to be pursued in the management of America, even more than its population and its commerce, I mean its temper and character. And this character of the Americans, a love of freedom, is the predominating feature which marks and distinguishes the whole, and, as an ardent, is always a jealous affection. Your colonies become suspicious, restive, and untractable, whenever they see the least attempt to rest from them by force, or shuffle from them by chicane, what they think the only advantage worth living for. This fierce spirit of liberty is stronger in the English colonies probably than in any other people of the earth. And this from a great variety of powerful causes, which, to understand the true temper of their minds and the direction which this spirit takes, it will not be amiss to lay open somewhat more largely. First, the people of the colonies are descendants of Englishmen. England, sir, is a nation which still, I hope, respects and formerly adored her freedom. The colonists emigrated from you when this part of your character was most predominant, and I took this bias and direction the moment they parted from your hands. They are therefore not only devoted to liberty, but to liberty according to English ideas and on English principles. Abstract liberty, like other mere abstractions, is not to be found. Liberty inheres in some sensible object, and every nation has formed to itself some favorite point which by way of eminence becomes a criterion of their happiness. It happened, you know, sir, that the great contests for freedom in this country were from the earliest times chiefly upon the question of taxing. Most of the contests in the ancient commonwealth turned primarily on the right of election of magistrates or on the balance among the several orders of the state. 
the question of money was not with them so immediate. But in England it was otherwise. On this point of taxes, the ablest pens and most eloquent tongues have been exercised. The greatest spirits have acted and suffered. In order to give the fullest satisfaction concerning the importance of this point, it was not only necessary for those who an argument defended the excellence of the English Constitution to insist on this privilege of granting money as a dry point of fact, and to prove that the right had been acknowledged in ancient parchments and blind usages to reside in a certain body called the House of Commons, they went much farther. They attempted to prove, and they succeeded, that in theory it ought to be so. From the particular nature of a House of Commons as an immediate representative of the people, whether the old records had delivered this oracle or not, it took infinite pains to inculcate as a fundamental principle that in all monarchies the people must in effect themselves immediately or immediately possess the power of granting their own money, or no shadow of liberty can subsist. Colonies draw from you, as with their lifeblood, these ideas and principles. Thy love of liberty, as with you, fixed and attached on the specific point of taxing. Liberty might be safe, or might be endangered, and twenty other particulars, without their being much pleased or alarmed. Here they felt its pulse, as they found that beat, and thought themselves sick or sound. I do not say whether they were right or wrong, applying your general arguments to their own case. It is not easy, indeed, to make a monopoly of theorems and corollaries. The fact is that they did thus apply those general arguments and your mode of governing them, whether through lenity or indolence, through wisdom or mistake, confirmed them in the imagination that they, as well as you, had interest in those common principles. They are further confirmed in this pleasing error by the form of the provincial legislative assemblies. Their governments are popular in a high degree. Some are merely popular. In all, the popular representative is the most weighty, and this share of the people in their ordinary government never fails to inspire them with lofty sentiments, with a strong aversion from whatever tends to deprive them of their chief importance. If anything were wanting to this necessary operation of the form of government, religion would have given it a complete effect. Religion, always a principle of energy, and this new people is no way worn out or impaired and their mode of professing it is also one main cause of this free spirit. The people are Protestants, of that kind which is the most adverse to all implicit submission of mind and opinion. This is the persuasion not only favorable to liberty, but built upon it. I do not think, sir, that the reason of this adverseness in the dissenting churches, for all that looks like absolute government, is so much to be sought in their religious tenets as in their history. Everyone knows that the Roman Catholic religion is at least coeval, with most governments where it prevails, and that has generally gone hand in hand with them, received great favor and every kind of support from authority. The Church of England, too, was formed from her cradle under the nursing care of regular government. But the dissenting interests have sprung up in a direct opposition to all the ordinary powers of the world, and could justify that opposition only on a strong claim to natural liberty. Their very existence depended on the powerful and unremitted assertion of that claim. All Protestantism, even the most cold and passive, is a sort of dissent. But the religion most prevalent in our northern colonies is a refinement on the principle of resistance. It is the dissidence of dissent and the Protestantism of the Protestant religion. This religion, under a variety of denominations, agreeing in nothing but in the communion of the spirit of liberty, is predominant in most of the northern provinces, where the Church of England, notwithstanding its legal rights, is in reality no more than a sort of private sect not composing most probably the tenth of the people. The colonists left England when the spirit was high, and in the emigrants was the highest of all. And even that stream of foreigners which has been constantly flowing to these colonies has, 
for the greatest part, been composed of dissenters from the establishments of their several countries, who have brought with them a temper and character far from alien to that of the people with whom they mixed. Sir, I can perceive by their manner that some gentlemen object to the latitude of this description, because in the southern colonies the Church of England forms a large body and has a regular establishment. It is certainly true. There is, however, a circumstance attending these colonies which, in my opinion, fully counterbalances this difference and makes the spirit of liberty still more high and haughty than in those to the northward. It is that in Virginia and the Carolinas they have a vast multitude of slaves. Where this is the case in any part of the world, those who are free are by far the most proud and jealous of their freedom. Freedom is to them not only an enjoyment, but a kind of rank and privilege. Not seeing there that freedom, as in countries where it is a common blessing and as broad and general as there, may be united with much abject toil, with great misery, with all the exterior of servitude, liberty looks amongst them like something that is more noble and liberal. I do not mean, sir, to commend the superior morality of the sentiment, which has at least as much pride as virtue in it, but I cannot alter the nature of man. The fact is so, and these people of the southern colonies are much more strongly with a higher and more stubborn spirit attached to liberty than those to the northward. Such were all the ancient commonwealths, such were our Gothic ancestors, such in our days were the Poles, and such will be all masters of slaves who are not slaves themselves. In such a people, the haughtiness of domination combines with the spirit of freedom, fortifies it, and renders it invincible. Permit me, sir, to add another circumstance in our colonies which contributes no mean part towards the growth and effect of this untractable spirit. I mean their education. In no country, perhaps in the world, is the law so general as study. The profession itself is numerous and powerful, and in most provinces it takes the lead. The greater number of the deputies sent to the Congress were lawyers. But all who read, and most do read, endeavor to gain some smattering in that science. I have been told by an eminent bookseller that no branch of his business, after tracts of popular devotion, are so many books as those on the law exported to the plantations. The colonists have now fallen into the way of printing them for their own use. I hear that they have sold nearly as many of Blackstone's commentaries in America as in England. General Gage marks out this disposition very particularly in a letter on your table. He states that all the people in his government are lawyers or smatterers in law, and that in Boston they have been enabled by a successful chicane wholly to evade many parts of one of your capital penal constitutions. The smartness of debate will say that this knowledge ought to teach them more clearly the rights of legislature, their obligations to obedience, and the penalties of rebellion. All this is mighty well, but my honorable and learned friend on the floor, who condescends to mark what I say for admitted version, will disdain that ground. He has heard, as well as I, that when great honors and great emoluments do not win over this knowledge to the service of the state, it is a formidable adversary to government. If the spirit be not tamed and broken by these happy methods, it is stubborn and litigious. Abunt studia in mores. The study renders men acute, inquisitive, dexterous, prompt in attack, ready in defense, full of resources. In other countries, the people more simple and of a less mercurial cast judge of an ill principle in government only by an actual grievance. Here, they anticipate the evil and judge of the pressure of the grievance by the badness of the principle. They augur misgovernment at a distance, and snuff the approach of tyranny in every tainted breeze. The last cause of this disobedient spirit in the colonies is hardly less powerful than the rest, as it is not merely moral, but laid deep in the natural constitution of things. Three thousand miles of ocean lie between you and them. 
No contrivance can prevent the effect of this distance in weakening government. Seas roll, and months pass, between the order and the execution, and the want of a speedy explanation of a single point is enough to defeat a whole system. You have indeed winged ministers of vengeance, who carry your bolts and their pounces to the remotest verge of the sea. But there, a power steps in that limits the arrogance of raging passions and furious elements, and says, So far shall thou go, and no farther. Who are you that you should fret and rage and bite the chains of nature? Nothing worse happens to you than does to all nations who have extensive empire, and it happens in all the forms into which empire can be thrown. In large bodies, the circulation of power must be less vigorous at the extremities. Nature has said it. The Turk cannot govern Egypt and Arabia and Kurdistan as he governs Thrace, nor has he the same dominion in Crimea and Algiers which he has at Brusa and Smyrna. Despotism itself is obliged to truck and huckster. The sultan gets such obedience as he can. He governs with a loose rein that he may govern at all. And the whole of the force and vigor of his authority in his center is derived from our prudent relaxation in all his borders. Spain, in her provinces, is perhaps not so well obeyed as you are in yours. She complies too. She submits. She watches times. This is the immutable condition, the eternal law of extensive and detached empire. Then, sir, from these six capital sources of descent, of form of government, of religion in the northern provinces, of manners in the southern, of education, of the remoteness of situation from the first mover of government, for all these causes, a fierce spirit of liberty has grown up. It has grown with the growth of the people in your colonies and increased with the increase of their wealth. A spirit that unhappily meeting with an exercise of power in England which, however lawful, is not reconcilable to any ideas of liberty, much less with theirs, has kindled this flame that is ready to consume us. I do not mean to commend either the spirit and the success or the moral causes which produce it. Perhaps a more smooth and accommodating spirit of freedom in them would be more acceptable to us. Perhaps ideas of liberty might be desired more reconcilable with an arbitrary and boundless authority. Perhaps we might wish the colonists to be persuaded that their liberty is more secure when held in trust for them by us, as their guardians during a perpetual minority, than with any part of it in their own hands. The question is, not whether their spirit deserves praise or blame, but what, in the name of God, shall we do with it? We have before you the object, such as it is, with all its glories, with all its imperfections, on its head. You see the magnitude, the importance, the temper, the habits, the disorders. With all these considerations, we are strongly urged to determine something concerning it. We are called upon to fix some rule and line for our future conduct, which may give a little stability to our politics, and prevent the return of such unhappy deliberations as the present. Every such return will bring the matter before us in a still more intractable form. For what astonishing and incredible things have we not seen already? What monsters have not been generated from this unnatural contention? Whilst every principle of authority and resistance has been pushed upon both sides as far as it would go, there is nothing so solid and certain, either in reasoning or in practice, that has not been shaken. Until very lately, all authority in America seemed to be nothing but an emanation from yours. Even the popular part of the colony constitution derived all its activity and its first vital movement from the pleasure of the crown. We thought, sir, that the utmost which the discontented colonies could do was to disturb authority. We never dreamt that they could of themselves supply it, knowing in general what an operous business it is to establish a government absolutely new. But having for our purposes in this contention 
resolved that none but an obedient assembly should sit, the humors of the people there, finding all passage through the legal channel stopped, with great violence broke out another way. Some provinces have tried their experiment, as we have tried ours, and theirs has succeeded. They have formed a government sufficient for its purposes, without the bustle of a revolution or the formality of an election. Evident necessity and tactic consent have done the business in an instant. So well they have done it that Lord Dunmore, the count is among the fragments on your table, tells you that the new institution is infinitely better obeyed than the ancient government ever was in its most fortunate periods. Obedience is what makes government, and not the names by which it is called, not the name of governor as formerly, or committee as at present. This new government has originated directly from the people, and was not transmitted through any of the ordinary artificial media of a positive constitution. It was not a manufacture ready formed and transmitted to them in that condition from England. The evil arising from hence is this, that the colonists, having once found the possibility of enjoying the advantages of order in the midst of a struggle for liberty, such struggles will not henceforward seem so terrible to the settled and sober part of mankind as they had appeared before the trial. Pursuing the same plan of punishing by the denial of the exercise of government to still greater lengths, we wholly abrogated the ancient government of Massachusetts. We were confident that the first feeling, if not the very prospect of anarchy, would instantly enforce a complete submission. The experiment was tried. A new, strange, unexpected face of things appeared. Anarchy is found tolerable. A vast province has now subsisted, and subsisted in a considerable degree of health and vigor for nearer twelve months, without governor, without public council, without judges, without executive magistrates. How long it will continue in the state, or what may arise out of this unheard of situation, how can the wisest of us conjecture? Our late experience has taught us that many of those fundamental principles, formerly believed invaluable, are either not of the importance they were imagined to be, or that we have not at all adverted to some other far more important and far more powerful principles, which entirely overrule those we considered as omnipotent. I am much against any further experiments which tend to put to the proof any more of these allowed opinions which contribute so much to the public tranquility. In effect, we suffer as much at home by this loosening of old ties and this concussion of all established opinions as we do abroad. For in order to prove that the Americans have no right to their liberties, we are every day endeavoring to subvert the maxims which preserve the whole spirit of our own. To prove that the Americans ought not to be free, we are obliged to depreciate the value of freedom itself. And we never gain a paltry advantage over them in debate with attacking some of those principles or deriding some of those feelings for which our ancestors have shed their blood. But, sir, in wishing to put an end to pernicious experiments, I do not mean to preclude the fullest inquiry. Far from it. Far from deciding on a sudden or partial view, I would patiently go round and round the subject and survey it minutely in every possible aspect. Sir, if I were capable of engaging you to an equal attention, I would state that, as far as I am capable of discerning, there are but three ways of proceeding relative to the stubborn spirit which prevails in your colonies and disturbs your government. These are to change that spirit as inconvenient by removing the causes to prosecute it as criminal, or to comply with it as necessary. I would not be guilty of an imperfect enumeration. I can think of but these three. Another has indeed been started, that of giving up the colonies, but I met so slight a reception that I do not think myself obliged to dwell a great while upon it. 
it is nothing but a little sally of anger like the forwardness of peevish children who when they cannot get all that they would have are resolved to take nothing the first of these plans to change the spirit as inconvenient by removing the causes i think is the most like a systematic proceeding it is radical in its principle but it is attended with great difficulties some of them little short as i conceive of impossibilities this will appear by examining into the plans which have been proposed as the growing population in the colonies is evidently one cause of their resistance it was last session mentioned in both houses by men of weight and received not without applause in order to check this evil it would be proper for the crown to make no further grants of land but to this scheme there are two objections the first that there is already so much unsettled land in private hands as to afford room for an immense future population although the crown not only withheld its grants but annihilated its soil if this be the case then the only effect of this avarice of desolation this hoarding of a royal wilderness would be to raise the value of the possessions in the hands of the great private monopolists without any adequate check to the growing and alarming mischief of population but if you stopped your grants what would be the consequence the people would occupy without grants they have already so occupied in many places you cannot station garrisons in every part of these deserts if you drive the people from one place they will carry on their annual tillage and remove with their flocks and herds to another many of the people in the back settlements are already little attached to particular situations already they have topped the appalachian mountains from thence they behold before them an immense plain one vast rich level meadow a square of five hundred miles over this they would wander without a possibility of restraint they would change their manners with the habits of their life would soon forget a government by which they were disowned would become hordes of english tartars and pouring down upon your unfortified frontiers a fierce and irresistible cavalry become masters of your governors and your counselors your collectors and comptrollers and of all the slaves that adhere to them such would that no long time must be the effect of attempting to forbid as a crime and to suppress as an evil the command and blessing of providence increase and multiply such would be the happy result of the endeavor to keep as a lair of wild beasts that earth which god by an express charter has given to the children of men far different and surely much wiser has been our policy hitherto hitherto we have invited our people by every kind of bounty to fixed establishments we have invited the husbandman to look to authority for his title we have taught him piously to believe in the mysterious virtue of wax and parchment we have thrown each tract of land as it was peopled into districts that the ruling power should never be wholly out of sight we have settled all we could and we have carefully attended every settlement with government adhering sir as i do to this policy as well for the reasons that i have just given i think this new project of hedging the population to be neither prudent nor practicable to impoverish the colonies in general and in particular to arrest the noble course of their marine enterprises would be a more easy task i freely confess it we have shown a disposition to a system of this kind a disposition even to continue the restraint after the offence looking on ourselves as rivals to our colonies and persuaded that of course we must gain or that they shall lose much mischief we may certainly do the power inadequate to all other things is often more than sufficient for this i do not look on the direct and immediate power of the colonies to resist our violence as very formidable in this however i may be mistaken 
But when I consider that we have colonies for no purpose but to be serviceable to us, it seems to my poor understanding a little preposterous to make them unserviceable in order to keep them obedient. It is, in truth, nothing more than the old, and as I thought, exploded problem of tyranny, which proposes to beggar its subjects into submission. But remember, when you have completed your system of impoverishment, that nature still proceeds in her ordinary course, that discontent will increase with misery, and that there are critical moments in the fortune of all states when they who are too weak to contribute to your prosperity may be strong enough to complete your ruin. Spoliatus arma supersunt. Temper and character which prevail in our colonies are, I am afraid, unalterable by any human art. We cannot, I fear, falsify the pedigree of this fierce people and persuade them that they are not sprung from a nation whose veins the blood of freedom circulates. The language in which they would hear you tell them this tale would detect the imposition. Their speech would betray you. An Englishman is the unfittest person on earth to argue another Englishman into slavery. I think it nearly as little in our power to change their republican religion as their free descent, or to substitute the Roman Catholic as a penalty for the Church of England as an improvement. The mode of inquisition and dragooning is going out of fashion in the old world. I should not confide much to their efficacy in the new. The education of the Americans is also on the same unalterable bottom with their religion. You cannot persuade them to burn their books of curious science, to banish their lawyers from their courts of law, or to quench the lights of their assemblies by refusing to choose those persons who are best read in their privileges. It would be no less impracticable to think of wholly annihilating the popular assemblies in which these lawyers sit. The army by which we must govern in their place would be far more chargeable to us, not quite as effectual, and perhaps in the end full as difficult to be kept in obedience. With regard to the high aristocratic spirit of Virginia and the southern colonies, it has been proposed, I know, to reduce it by declaring a general enfranchisement of their slaves. This object has had its advocates in Panegyrus, yet I never could argue myself into any opinion of it. Slaves are often much attached to their masters. A general wild offer of liberty would not always be accepted. History furnishes few instances of it. It is sometimes as hard to persuade slaves to be free as it is to compel free men to be slaves. In a suspicious scheme, we would have both these pleasing tasks in our hands at once. But when we talk of enfranchisement, do we not perceive that the American master may enfranchise too, and arm servile hands in defense of freedom? A measure to which other people have had recourse more than once, and not without success, in a desperate situation of their affairs. Slaves, as these unfortunate black people are, and dull as all men are from slavery, must they not a little suspect the offer of freedom from that very nation which had sold them to their present masters? From that nation, one of whose causes of quarrel with those masters is their refusal to deal any more in that inhuman traffic? An offer of freedom from England would come rather oddly, shipped to them in an African vessel, which is refused in entering into the ports of Virginia or Carolina, with a cargo of three hundred Angola Negroes, would be curious to see the Guinea captain attempting at the same instant to publish his proclamation of liberty and to advertise his sale of slaves. But let us suppose all these moral difficulties got over. The ocean remains. You cannot pump this dry as long as it continues in its present bed, so long all the causes which weaken authority by distance will continue. Ye gods, annihilate but space and time, and make two lovers happy. 
was a pious and passionate prayer, but just as reasonable as many of the serious wishes of grave and solemn politicians. If then, sir, it seems almost desperate to think of any alternative course for changing the moral causes, and not quite easy to remove the natural, which produce prejudices irreconcilable to the late exercise of our authority, but that the spirit infallibly will continue, and continuing will produce such effects as now embarrass us. The second mode under consideration is to prosecute that spirit and its overt acts as criminal. At this proposition, I must pause a moment. The thing seems a great deal too big for my ideas of jurisprudence. It should seem to my way of conceiving such matters that there is a very wide difference in reason and policy between the mode of proceeding on the irregular conduct of scattered individuals, or even of bands of men who disturb order within the state, and the civil dissensions which may, from time to time, on great questions, agitate the several communities which compose a great empire. It looks to me to be narrow and pedantic to apply the ordinary ideas of criminal justice to this great public contest. I do not know the method of drawing up an indictment against a whole people. I cannot insult and ridicule the feelings of millions of my fellow creatures, as Sir Edward Coke insulted one excellent individual at the bar. I hope I am not right to pass sentence on the gravest public bodies, entrusted with magistracies of great authority and dignity and charged with the safety of their fellow citizens upon the very same title that I am. I really think that, for wise men, this is not judicious, for sober men not decent, for minds tinctured with humanity not mild and merciful. Perhaps, sir, I am mistaken in my idea of an empire, as distinguished from a single state or kingdom. But my idea of it is this, that an empire is the aggregate of many states under one common head, whether this head be a monarch or a presiding republic. It does, in such constitutions, frequently happen, and nothing but the dismal, cold, dead uniformity of servitude can prevent its happening, that the subordinate parts have many local privileges and immunities. Between these privileges and the supreme common authority, the line may be extremely nice. Of course, disputes, often, too, very bitter disputes and much ill blood will arise. But though every privilege is an exemption in the case from the ordinary exercise of the supreme authority, it is no denial of it. The claim of a privilege seems rather, ex vitermini, to imply a superior power, or to talk of the privileges of a state or of a person who has no superior is hardly any better than speaking nonsense. Now, in such unfortunate quarrels among the component parts of a great political union of communities, I can scarcely conceive anything more completely imprudent than for the head of the empire to insist that, if any privilege is pleaded against his will or his acts, his whole authority is denied, instantly to proclaim rebellion, to beat to arms, and to put the offending provinces under the ban. Will not this, sir, very soon teach the provinces to make no distinctions on their part? Will not teach them that the government against which a claim of liberty is tantamount to high treason is a government to which submission is equivalent to slavery? It may not always be quite convenient to impress dependent communities with such an idea. We are indeed, in all disputes with the colonies, by the necessity of things, the judge. It is true, sir, but I confess that the character of judge in my own cause is a thing that frightens me. Instead of filling me with pride, I am exceedingly humbled by it. I cannot proceed with a stern, assured, judicial confidence until I find myself in something more like a judicial character. I must have these hesitations as long as I am compelled to recollect that, in my little reading upon such contests as these, the sense of mankind has at least as often decided against the superior as the subordinate power.
sir let me add too that the opinion of my having some abstract right in my favor would not put me much at my ease in passing sentence unless i could be sure that there were no rights which and their exercise under certain circumstances were not the most odious of all wrongs and the most vexatious of all injustice sir these considerations have great weight with me when i find things so circumstance that i see the same party at once a civil litigant against me in point of right and a culprit before me while i sit as a criminal judge on acts of his whose moral quality is to be decided upon the merits of that very litigation men are every now and then put by the complexity of human affairs into strange situations but justice is the same let the judge be in what situation he will there is sir also a circumstance which convinces me that this mode of criminal proceedings is not at least in the present stage of our contest altogether expedient which is nothing less than the conduct of those very persons who have seemed to adopt the mode by lately declaring a rebellion in massachusetts bay as they had formerly addressed at traitors brought hither under an act of henry the eighth for trial for though rebellion is declared it is not proceeded against as such nor have any steps been taken towards the apprehension or conviction of any individual offender either on our late or our former address but modes of public coercion have been adopted and such as have much more resemblance to a sort of qualified hostility towards an independent power than the punishment of rebellious subjects all this seems rather inconsistent but it shows how difficult it is to apply these juridical ideas to our present case in this situation let us seriously and coolly ponder what is it we have got by all our menaces which have been many and ferocious what advantage have we derived from the penal laws we have passed and which for the time have been severe and numerous what advances have we made towards our object by the sending of a force which by land and sea is no contemptible strength has the disorder abated nothing less when i see things in this situation after such confident hopes bold promises and active exertions i cannot for my life avoid a suspicion that the plan itself is not correctly right if we adopt this mode if we mean to conciliate and concede let us see what nature the concession ought to be to ascertain the nature of our concession we must look at their complaint the colonies complain that they have not the characteristic mark and seal of british freedom they complain that they are taxed in a parliament in which they are not represented if you mean to satisfy them at all and you must satisfy them with regard to this complaint if you mean to please any people you must give them the boon which they ask not what you may think better for them but of a kind totally different such an act may be a wise regulation but is no concession whereas our present theme is the mode of giving satisfaction sir i think you must perceive that i am resolved this day to have nothing at all to do with the question of the right of taxation some gentlemen startle but it is true i put it totally out of the question it is less than nothing in my consideration i do not indeed wonder nor will you sir that gentlemen of profound learning are fond of displaying it on this profound subject but my consideration is narrow confined and wholly limited to the policy of the question i do not examine whether the giving away a man's money be a power accepted a reserve out of the general trust of government and how far all mankind and all forms of polity are entitled to an exercise of that right by the charter of nature or whether on the contrary our right of taxation is necessarily involved in the general principle of legislation and inseparable from the ordinary supreme power these are deep questions where great names militate against each other where reason is perplexed and the appeal to authorities only thickens the confusion where high and revered authorities lift up their heads on both sides and there is no sure footing in the middle 
This point is the great Serbonian bog, betwixt Demeda and Mount Cassius Old, where armies whole have sunk. I do not intend to be overwhelmed in that bog, though in such respectable company. The question with me is, not whether you have a right to render your people miserable, but whether it is not your interest to make them happy. It is not what a lord tells me I may do, but what humanity, reason, and justice tell me I ought to do. Is it a politic act, the worse for being a generous one? Is no concession proper but that which is made from your want of right to keep what you grant? Or does it lessen the grace of dignity, of relaxing the exercise of an odious claim, because you have your evidence room full of titles, and your magazines stuffed with arms to enforce them? What signify all those titles and all those arms? Of what avail are they when the reason of the thing tells me that the assertion of my title is the loss of my suit, and that I could do nothing but wound myself by the use of my own weapons? Such is steadfastly my opinion of the absolute necessity of keeping up the concord of this empire by a unity of spirit, though in a diversity of operations, that, if I were sure the colonists had, their leaving this country sealed a regular compact of servitude, that they had solemnly abjured all the rights of citizens, that they had made a vow to renounce all ideas of liberty for them and their posterity to all generations. Yet I should hold myself obliged to conform to the temper I found universally prevalent in my own day, and to govern two million of men impatient of servitude on the principles of freedom. I am not determining a point of law. I am restoring tranquility and the general character and situation of a people must determine what sort of government is fitted for them. At that point, nothing else can or ought to determine. My idea, therefore, without considering whether we yield as matter of right or grant as matter of favor, is to admit the people of our colonies into an interest in the Constitution, and, by recording that admission in the journals of Parliament, to give them as strong an assurance as the nature of the thing will admit that we mean forever to adhere to that solemn declaration of systematic indulgence. Some years ago, the repeal of a revenue act upon its understood principle might have served to show that we intended an unconditional abatement of the exercise of a taxing power. Such a measure was then sufficient to remove all suspicion and to give perfect content. But unfortunate events since that time may make something further necessary, and not more necessary for the satisfaction of the colonies than for the dignity and consistency of our own future proceedings. I have taken a very incorrect measure of the disposition of the House if this proposal in itself would be received with dislike. I think, sir, we have few American financiers. But our misfortune is we are too acute, we are too exquisite in our conjectures of the future, for men oppressed with such great and present evils. The more moderate among the opposers of parliamentary concession freely confess that they hope no good from taxation, but they apprehend the colonists have further views, and if this point were conceded, they would instantly attack the trade laws. These gentlemen are convinced that this was the intention from the beginning, and the quarrel of the Americans with taxation was no more than a cloak and cover to this design. Such has been the language even of a gentleman of real moderation, and of a natural temper well adjusted to fair and equal government. I am, however, sir, not a little surprised at this kind of discourse whenever I hear it, but I am the more surprised on account of the arguments which I constantly find in company with it, which are often urged from the same mouths and on the same day. For instance, when we allege that it is against reason to tax a people under so many restraints and trade as the Americans, the noble lord in the blue ribbon 
to tell you that their strengths on trade are futile and useless, of no advantage to us, and of no burthen to those on whom they are imposed, that the trade to America is not secured by the acts of navigation, but by the natural and irresistible advantage of a commercial preference. Such is the merit of the trade laws in this posture of the debate. But when strong internal circumstances are urged against the taxes, when the scheme is dissected, when experience and the nature of things are brought to prove, and do prove, the utter impossibility of obtaining an effective revenue from the colonies, when these things are pressed, or rather press themselves, so as to drive the advocates of colony taxes to a clear admission of the futility of the scheme, then, sir, the sleeping trade laws are revived from their trance, and this useless taxation is to be kept sacred, not for its own sake, but as a counterguard and security of the laws of trade. Then, sir, you keep up revenue laws which are mischievous in order to preserve trade laws that are useless. Such is the wisdom of our plan in both its members. They are separately given up as of no value, and yet one is always to be defended for the sake of the other. I cannot agree with the noble lord, nor with the pamphlet from whence he seems to have borrowed these ideas concerning the inutility of the trade laws, for, without idolizing them, I am sure they are still, in many ways, of great use to us, and in former times they have been of the greatest. They do confine, and they do greatly narrow, the market for the Americans. But my perfect conviction of this does not help me in the least to discern how the revenue laws form any security whatsoever to the commercial regulations, or that these commercial regulations are the true ground of the quarrel, or that the giving way in any one instance of authority is to lose all that may remain unconceded. One fact is clear and indisputable. The public and avowed origin of this quarrel was on taxation. This quarrel has indeed brought on new disputes on new questions, but certainly the least bitter and the fewest of all on the trade laws. To judge which of the two be the real radical cause of quarrel, we have to see whether the commercial dispute did, in order of time, precede the dispute on taxation. There is not a shadow of evidence for it. Next, to enable us to judge whether at this moment a dislike to the trade laws be the real cause of quarrel, it is absolutely necessary to put the taxes out of the question by a repeal. See how the Americans act in this position, and then you will be able to discern correctly what is the true object of controversy or whether any controversy at all will remain. Unless you consent to remove this cause of difference, it is impossible with decency to assert that the dispute is not upon what it is about to be. And I would, sir, recommend to your serious consideration whether it be prudent to form a rule for punishing people, not on their own acts, but on your conjectures. Surely it is preposterous at the very best. It is not justifying your anger by their misconduct but it is converting your ill will into their delinquency. But the colonies will go further. Alas, alas, when will this speculation against fact and reason end? What will quiet these panicked fears which we entertain of the hostile effect of a conciliatory conduct? Is it true that no case can exist in which it is proper for the sovereign to accede to the desires of his discontented subjects? Is there anything peculiar in this case to make a rule for itself? Is all authority, of course, lost when it's not pushed to the extreme? Is it a certain maxim that the fewer causes of dissatisfaction are left by government, the more the subject will be inclined to resist and rebel? All these objections being, in fact, no more than suspicions, conjectures, divinations, formed in defiance of fact and experience. They did not, sir, discourage me from entertaining the idea 
a conciliatory concession founded on the principles which I have just stated. End of part one.